0: get to the the hard facts and stuff and get going. Sure. <laughs> so, um hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Uh today I am absolutely delighted to be joined by a man I spent 2 years trying to get on this podcast. Uh Dave Lar, everybody. Welcome to the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: And appreciate the persistence. Sorry if <laughs> it took too long. yeah I'm glad to
0: be here. No problem. Well, I mean, you've been busy build in urban finance so so why don't we start there like what is urban finance and and why have you decided to put it together
1: yeah um urban finance is our attempt to uh, build something that that satisfies what I saw and what my partner saw as a hole in the market which is that retail investors are this new force in markets and yet uh, they have access to very poor sources of data, um, and I also see this drive to form and build communities, and nothing that was r- really purpose-built to do that. And so we we thought to ourselves, well, this is this is something we think we can build. We know all the right data sources, um, and we can you know we can take what we've seen happening on social media and build a platform that's kind of purpose-built for that. So we've got a, a platform right now. It's in beta for the last um, maybe two and a half months now. Um, and it's got the, the top uh, data sources out there in terms of fundamental data, market data, and charting capabilities, uh, short interest in stock loan data, uh, and um, you know analyst ratings and estimates and forecasts and all that. Insider ownership and and that type of thing, and SEC filings, and then it's also got a platform. it looks a lot like Reddit, and it's a community platform where people are posting and commenting, upvoting, downvoting, all of that. And it's really starting to you know gather steam, and it's been really cool to see that, and to see that people seem to like what we've built. You know, it's got a ways to go. We're still in beta, um, but we've got uh, almost twenty thousand people on the platform now in just a couple months. So that's that's pretty exciting and uh, we're growing pretty quickly. So, you know, it's it's been a lot of fun. And and then the other side of it is, we're building as much content as we can to help educate uh, individual investors and help them understand different nuances of the market, um, both from a market structure perspective, which is really what I tend to focus on, but also from an investing and financial literacy perspective. And uh, it, it's great to find people around the industry and in academia who kind of support what we're doing and want to help and they're, they're recording uh, videos for us and producing content um, and that's that's been great and, and is you know that's that's a major area that we want to to build out too
0: yeah and one of the obviously the reason that you decided to put this platform together was because of the gamestop saga and and yeah. one of I think the most positive aspects of the entire thing, um, we'll get to the sort of possible crime corruption parts in a bit, but um, was, has just been watching people educate themselves. Like I have, I have never been on such a steep learning curve as I had whilst I was watching that, that sort of initial run up for the first like month and, and sort of the, the, the follow from it. And then the, the, the second run up in, in March of that year. And have you have you ever witnessed like anything on the scale of the amount of like information that was being put out and the amount of education that was being given to like retail investors for free in those moments no i not nothing Uh, absolutely
1: not it's been it's been so cool to see it and to be a small part of it and to to see the passion i think around markets that people have developed and the interest in market structure. I mean, this is stuff that uh, me and a very small community of people have been talking about for many years and no one really cared. And now suddenly a lot of people care. And I think that's great because I think people should care about this kind of stuff. I think this is sort of the foundation of the economy and and how capitalism itself works. And so, you know, this stuff matters. And uh, I'm really glad to see that people care about that. um, And that there's this sort of, this approach and this philosophy of sharing information um, and that that is a big part of what inspired us to build this and and the other side of you know the saga is this idea that you know you have shareholders who are so passionate about the company they invest in they're the best customers they're the biggest advocates and that was a model that we wanted to recreate in how we built our company and that's why we went went forward with crowdfunding um because i I think it's great, you know, I, I found it very inspirational to see people and how they felt about that company um, and, and what that meant for the company and how it, it was the difference between that company existing and not, right? And and I think that there's a lot in markets that we can learn from from this experience. And, and I think that's a big, big part of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's almost as if, if the investors of a company genuinely want it to succeed, and aren't just private equity firms or asset strippers mm. that a company can succeed under those Imagine conditions. That, I know, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, for real, you know, I, I think
1: we've lost sight, especially in markets, we've lost sight of what markets are supposed to be for. Uh, you know, a lot of people on Wall Street just see them as a casino or uh, a way to extract rents and money uh, from everyday people. And I think that's just really messed up. Um, and I think that there, this is like markets meeting the social media age, and this, the, you know, this capability that you now have of self-organizing communities at scale. And I, I do. I think it's a great thing. And I, and I think that uh, GameStop is sort of the the shining beacon of light uh, of you know how this new model can be leveraged for everybody's success um, and hopefully as things progress, financial success as well for shareholders. Um, And I think it's something that a lot of even public companies took notice of um, and are trying to figure out, you know, is there a way that they can engage shareholders um, in fruitful ways like that? And that's something, it's another side of what we're building with Irvin which is to sort of, help companies uh, engage their shareholders in unique ways that you know they haven't really thought about before
0: so what would you say that the primary um the primary reason for having a stock market is so you mentioned there that like it's been sort of not your word but like bastardized basically <laughs> from, yeah. from its original conception like what what how would you define like what that is for like what is a market there to do like what's a stock market for yeah, markets serve
1: two purposes, and, and this is something that I think a lot of people lose sight of, and it's very simple. Uh, it's capital formation and price discovery. That's it, right? Capital formation. That's like the pri- that's the primary market. You know, you go public, you raise money by selling shares to the public. Um, that's that's the function of the, of sort of a primary listing. What what one would call the primary market. The secondary market. Is where trading takes place when shares are bought and sold by people. And that's for that's where price discovery takes place. And price discovery is the, you know, the, the point of um, of markets and of capitalism in general, right, is to allocate scarce resources. That's that's economics sort of 101, right? And there are different approaches to allocating scarce resources. Communism is one approach. Uh, Mercantilism, another. Capitalism is another, Um, none of which I think are very good, but I would say, you know, capitalism is the best one we've come up with so far. Uh, And when you are trying to allocate scarce resources, you need to know what something is worth. That's, that's the point. That's what markets do. It tells you what something is worth. In, in communism, you have a Politburo, you know, a central committee that says this is what this is worth and here's how much we're going to buy. this is what right And in capitalism, the market as this complex chaotic system, uh, tries to incorporate information in, in all these ways in order to arrive at the value of something based on supply and demand um, and you know it comes up with an equilibrium price. And so uh, for companies, They need to know what they're worth because often they have to raise more money at times, right? They do follow-on offerings. uh, And so the market has to give an accurate picture of what that company is worth, both in order for them to raise money, in order for them to compensate their employees, which they usually do through stocks, and in in order for them to, uh, you know, in order for shareholders to benefit as, you know, cash flows increase over time and you get returns and dividends and such like that. So, you know, it's a pretty... Fundamental it, it, markets play a pretty fundamental role in a capitalist economy, um, and you know everything works or doesn't work based on how good markets are operating, how efficiently they're operating, mm.
0: and accurately. Yeah. So, price discovery is something I really wanted to get into with you because, no, I am going to lay out my understanding of why I think it doesn't exist in um in our in the current um U.S. market. And then you can tell me if I'm wrong <laughs> here in my assumptions, okay. right? Because <laughs> um, I think I'm not the only one who has this opinion of the people who are going to be listening. So my, like, my prior to GameStop, my understanding had basically been the stock market is, say, I have 100 shares of Apple and I want to sell them. I go and like put them up for sale in the market, basic understanding. But, and then someone who wants to buy 100 shares of Apple comes along and goes, oh, okay, I'll buy that, right? However, what seems to happen in my understanding of it is someone goes, I want to sell a hundred shares of Apple. Market maker comes in the middle, goes, yep, we'll have that. They take them. And then at some point, maybe they sell them onto someone else. Maybe they don't. And (laughs) to me, that just seems like there's no accurate discovery of what the price should actually be based on what other people in the market, aside from that market maker are willing to pay for it. And that just feels like, especially in the case of if I'm going out into the market and wanting to buy shares that aren't available, that can just be um, synthetically created by the market makers in order to um, increase or have maximum liquidity. It feels like that's like, that's not satisfying supply and demand. That's just someone saying, oh, you want to buy it? Sure, I got it. Yeah, here you go, take it, um, without actually having it. And it seems to me that that completely defeats the purpose of the price discovery aspect of the market. Like, am I misunderstanding something here?
1: No, I I think that um, there's a lot of truth in it. Um, And and this has actually been, so, Trying to think because there's there's a lot going on in that question and that answer. So um, first, I will say this Let, let's let's start with the other side. The other side would say there are two mechanisms for price discovery. There's the quote in the market and then there are the trades that are happening. And so even though um, you don't interact with the quote, uh, your trade gets printed to the tape. and so there is some price discovery happening. Um, now, I think that there's a pretty good case to make that if trades aren't hitting a lit quote, that there is a dramatic decrease in their contribution to price discovery. I don't want to say it's zero, but I will say it's dramatically lower than it otherwise would be if it were hitting that quote. Um, So I do think that there is a case to be made that by internalizing and diverting all of this order flow off exchange that there is a dampening of demand. And so that means the price is not reflective of the actual supply and actual demand. Um, And then the other side of it, which is the supply question is that's absolutely true. You know, if you're a market maker and you can sell shares without having even located them, um, it, it it, it does seem like And I was thinking about this question the other day, I was like, the, the number of outstanding shares that a company has is a floor. And it's, you know, obviously, more shares can be created through stock loan and such. And that increases the float, it increases the outstanding shares. There's no way for it to go the other direction. Like you can't actually go below the outstanding shares. And that seems weird to me. Um, I don't have a really good answer for how you would address that, honestly, but it, it, something there still that, that, that seems off to me. But you know in, in terms of uh, price discovery, I do think that there is a significant impact on supply and demand through this practice of market makers executing all these retail orders uh, off exchange. And frankly, they brag about it. <laughs> right they they legitimately brag about it so um the sec has provo- proposed a, a slate of new rules uh, in u.s markets and a couple of those rules would work together to mostly eliminate this practice and bring most retail orders on exchange into these auction facilities and you you know feel how you how you might about the auction model i personally am, am not a huge fan. I think it's better than what we have today, but I think a simpler trade at, what's called a trade at rule would be a better solution. But regardless, um, the the model that's been proposed by the SEC is this auction model. And one of the ways that the market makers are arguing against this model is by saying, well, it in the retail auction on, on exchange, uh, you know, firms would have no obligation to fill orders. Whereas in this internalization system, you know, they contract with the retail broker and they have to fill every order. Um, and what that means and what they say they do is that means they cross-subsidize. So they take what they the money they make from the um, stocks that are easy to trade and they use that to subsidize and fill orders in stocks that are less liquid and harder to trade. Now. This is them, this is the case they're making. And now when I hear that, what I hear is we provide inferior execution in easy to trade stocks so that we can distort supply and demand in the harder to trade stuff. And I've said this to the SEC, I'm like, that's what they're saying. That That's not what we want, right? If something is not liquid, if it's not easy to trade, well then the price should reflect when there's large amounts of demand for that stock. So I, I think that this, this all is this sort of wrapped up in this question of price discovery. And I, I, I find some, some of the times I find what these firms, the, the case that these firms make to be kind of funny because I don't think it says what they, what they think it says because they're so sort of wrapped up in the world that they're in that they don't really think about what they're actually saying. Um, and I think this is a really good example of that.
0: Hmm yeah it's it's literally that that scene from the big short like there's no there are they confessing it's like no they're bragging right <laughs> yeah. exactly right it's so funny oh yeah and like it kind of brings me to something that that I, I i try to ask as many people um wrapped up in the financial industry as i can and is what is the culture like is is there is there a single person okay maybe not a, maybe there's more okay. than a single person but are there are there is there like a group of people or like at least like a minority who are thinking wow this market is screwed up or is everybody who is embedded within the financial industry still there because they're like well this is fine like this is our casino like is the is the apart from maybe um oh, no, i'm gonna blank on the name the guy who's basically the main character in flash boys by michael lewis uh is like bill bill Huang. i think Mike, michael Berry. No, no, it's the guy who was working for RBC. I can't remember what his name is. Oh, Flash Boys. Oh, Brad Katsuyama. Brad Katsuyama, that's who it is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. uh, Like, he seems to be one of the few people in the industry that that actually seems to care about having, like, uh, a a free, fair, open, transparent market. Like, is, is he like a lone warrior? Obviously yourselves as well at the terminal now. But, like, is that it? Like, is the industry just only stacked with people who are fine with the way it operates?
1: No. Um, I, there are a lot of people in the industry uh, that support what we do. There are a lot of people in the industry that care. You know, it's it's an industry made up of people, right? And, and lots of people... Feel a lot, you know. Believe different things, and and feel different ways. So, um, I think broadly speaking, it's a terrible industry, <laughs> and um, you know, it's it's filled with a lot of awful people, but it's not all awful people. Um, and I I know a ton, you know. I know so many people in the industry that are good, and even you know, it. I, I say that, but it, it's sometimes people will do things that they don't see as awful um, and they're not a bad person but the incentives are completely warped right the incentives are not aligned with this sort of societally beneficial outcomes and that drives even entire firms to do things that I think a lot of us would disagree with um, and I don't know that that means they're bad people. That There are lots of bad people, right? There are lots of people that break rules purposefully. And, you know, we see this in enforcement actions, uh, not enough enforcement actions, but, but we see it, right? Um, but there are, you know, someone like, Brad's a great example and, and you know, he's a friend and, and, and I love what, I, you know, I was, I helped IEX when they first started. I, I've been a fan for a long time. Um, I think I know a lot of people at the company, and they do it. They they do it because they care. These are all people that could probably be making more money in other places, um, and they they've done very well at IEX for sure. But that was a crapshoot, and you know a lot of people don't don't recognize the kind of risk you take when you jump into a startup, uh, especially one which you know is somewhat mission driven as well. Which you know I think is part of what we're doing too. Um, but I, you know, I I helped to create an organization called the Healthy Markets Association, and that was a, a, a an association of firms that wanted to make changes to market regulation. A lot of the same changes that we talk about as ones that retail should support, uh, those institutional investors supported. So there there are lots of good firms, there are lots of good people, um, and e- there are good people at bad firms. You know, <laughs> I I have people reach out to me all the time, um, and you know, look, I. It, it's hard to judge someone for doing what's right by their family and you know they get paid a lot of money and they have a career that they have built. Um, and you know it's it's easy to say, well, you should leave this company that you're working at, but that's you know that that's very that, that's easy to say. It's often much harder to do. And, you know, so I know people all over the place that reach out to me and want to talk and want to support what we do in whatever way they can, but they can't do it publicly. And they can't, you know, their bosses can't know that they're doing it. Um, So, you know, I I think a lot of people in the industry see these issues and have talked about them for a long time. Um, I think the the thing that was missing, frankly, was a regulator that was willing to sort of stand up to very powerful firms or very powerful people. Um, I think we have that now. But these things all take time. It takes time to undo decades worth of, you know, uh, structure and rules and and even legislation. Mm.
0: That's interesting that you say. You think we have um, that sort of regulator now? And I because I posted on Twitter just when we started saying, "Does anyone want to ask me a question?" Or when I asked David oh, a question, yeah. um, <laughs> so a couple of couple of people have mentioned things about the SEC and Gary Gensler. Uh, like what sure. what is what is your take on it? Because there was a lot of positivity when he first um came to the SEC people were looking at him um i watched some of his lectures um back when he was i uh, think was MIT and he was doing ones on um like cryptocurrency and cryptography um, and it seemed like he he genuinely had an understanding of the markets and and had a a view that there was a way to regulate them that would not cause them to all come crashing down and mm-hmm. then it seems like his rhetoric has slowly been toned down over the past sort of year and a half or two years since he took over. And it seems like, especially I think he, he really missed a trick on SBF um on Sam Bankman-Fried uh, yep. for whatever reason that is. Um, we'll not speculate, but um like what is, do you, do you think he's someone out there like genuinely, genuinely interested in trying to, bring some of these large financial players under a bit more control or you know is he sort of is he fallen victim to industry capture in the same way that many regulatory agencies do um so
1: i i'll say a couple of things first on on sbf and ftx you know a lot of people were 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 very fooled by that um, a lot, a lot of were international money from him. Yeah, a lot of international regulators, a lot of politicians took a lot of money uh, on every side. Right? There's no one that sort of has their hands clean here. So um, I I think that I'm going to leave that because you know that's that was a pretty messed up situation, and um, you know criminals are really good. Like Bernie Madoff was really good at having people not see what he was doing, Um, and that's usually what very talented criminals are good at. Um, I think that the other side of that question, I have what appears to be an unpopular opinion that yes, I, I think Gary Gensler is trying to fix things and trying to come in um, and take on some very powerful firms. Um, I've been around this for a while. I've seen uh, several SEC chairs and many SEC commissioners interacted with many of them Um, And none of them have been willing to take on these firms. And so I think it's very easy for people who have never really paid attention to the regulatory process in the past for the last, let's say, 20 years to come in and say, why haven't changes been made already in the next, you know, why don't you just change things today or tomorrow or in six months? And it's, again, it's, it's very easy to say that and it, it kind of just doesn't acknowledge the fact that there are laws that have to be followed in order to create new regulations. Um, and that you're dealing with a system that's been in place for decades. And, the, you know, it's been designed to look good and to be defensible and to make it easy to sort of sow disinformation and gaslight people. Um, and, that these are, you know, Citadel, uh, Ken Griffin is one of the top political donors to the GOP, right? Like what, you think that's easy to to address? You know, like we are dealing with a very corrupt country and a very corrupt political system, uh, and often with regulators that have been captured in all sorts of different ways, whether it's sort of subtly through big law and, and, you know, fancy, you know, perks or whether it's explicit revolving doors where top people at regulators are now working at Citadel, right? So person after person from the Fed, from the SEC have gone to work at Citadel and now come in uh, to, to lobby on a regular basis with people that they worked with in the past. Like, who thought that would be easy to change? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's funny, like from Gensler's perspective, he can do no right so everyone in retail that I talked to is like, why hasn't it been fixed yet? What's going on? And everyone in the industry is like, why is he doing so much? This is crazy, right? <laughs> like, he's he's a nut job, What all these new regulations. And retail is like, what are you talking about? He hasn't done shit. And everyone else is like, this is the craziest liberal nut job I've ever seen. And it's like, it it's it's like you don't even, you're sitting in the middle and you're like, what the fuck am I supposed to do here? So, you know, not only is it an impossible situation, but the, the equity market structure proposals that came out last December um, are the first significant changes to markets in 18 years. Since 2005, they would most likely end Citadel and Virtu's control over markets like they specifically are targeted to do many things but this is one of the things that as as a as an outcome of the regulations that would happen it's exactly what people want and so so many people uh, so many retail investors who don't think he's doing the right thing on equity markets you know, we've tried to explain it. We've tried to point out how important it is. And we've gotten so many people sort of on board with that. We've gotten thousands of comment letters filed, you know, through our different initiatives. And I think that's wonderful and it's amazing. And and it's exactly what people should want to do. They should want to be involved in the regulatory process. Um, but at the, at the same time, again, it's like, you know, I, I, I think expectations th- that, you know, result in thinking that he's not doing anything, um, I, I just think it's very, it, it's kind of disconnected from how it, the system works. And you might say, well, that means we need to blow up the system. And, and oh, fine, you, you can believe that if you want, but then, okay, so what are you doing to blow up the system, right? And how do you do that without causing mass poverty and mass economic pain and what comes out of it? Like, what do you have on the other end of it? I, I struggle to to see the answers To those questions, and then you know, like you're saying, on the crypto side of things, uh, you know, I don't know. I I haven't engaged with the SEC much on crypto. I talk a lot about it on my podcast. I've had people. uh, We've devoted several episodes to talking about crypto. We're doing another one next week, Um, and you know, trying to say, is crypto a security? You know, what, what do you think from a legal perspective? What do you think from a financial and, and, and securitization perspective? And, you know, I'm not gonna sort of pretend to know the answer. I think there are many cryptocurrencies that have a lot of aspects of securities. Um, and, you know, what I think Gensler did is he came in and he said, he these are the tools I have. Nobody is doing anything so maybe I should, you know, people say, well, the CFTC should. Well, what is, what is the CFTC doing? Um, you know, did, did the CFTC figure out FTX? No. Did the SEC? No. You know, the, I think you see a huge number of people lose a lot of money through scams like that. And as a regulator, if you care, you say, man, I, maybe I should be doing something. And if no one else is going to, if Congress is not going to act, which is really what should have happened this entire time. Congress should have explicitly laid out the framework for what these things are, who's going to regulate them, and how. Um, You know, if you're someone who cares and doesn't like to see people being scammed out of money, often people that can't afford to be scammed, uh, I think it is a very natural impulse to say, I'm going to try and do something. Um, And I do think if you look at his record in the courts and the SEC's record in the courts in crypto, it's almost flawless (laughs) and almost of course because there have been a couple of defeats especially recently but before that i think the courts were very much on the sec side and i don't think anything is really settled at this point on crypto
0: yeah i mean i know there's been a lot of controversy um around the the ripple court case Um, and i'm hoping to get jeremy kaufman on um from odyssey who's gonna who really has been been very very Uh, deep on that so uh, I will not go into that there because I have not done enough research on it yet to give an accurate opinion or uh, ask some real good questions on it but say say you could go and change like one rule or make up one rule or remove one rule or regulation within the US stock market like what would be the thing that you would you would focus in on to try and make it maybe a more fair and transparent market I think that's a really hard question to answer, um, mostly
1: in that uh, market structure is relatively complex. And it's re- as soon as you start to sort of pull a thread, you you realize how interconnected everything is. So I'm going to cheat and I'm going to say I have to at least get two rules. Um, but the, the one rule that I would really focus on is what I call the trade at rule um, or the minimum price improvement rule. And this is something that most other markets around the world have. And what it says is, if you want to execute a trade off of an exchange, uh, you have to provide a minimum amount of price improvement. And that price improvement, in in like in the Canadian style of the rule, they say uh, it has to be at least a full tick. If the spread is more than a tick wide, or at the midpoint, if the spread is a tick wide. And the SEC proposed something very similar in this new set of rules. It's called the order competition rule, and it. It basically says, it's, a, it's, a, it's an even more aggressive form of a rule that I just described. It says, if you wanna execute something off exchange, you can only do so at the midpoint, regardless of the spread. Um, otherwise, you have to send that order to an exchange or to these what, what, what are called these qualified auction facilities, um, which as I was talking about before, there's, you know, there's some controversy in the way that the SEC has designed the auctions. But I think that rule, um, would do more for market function, um, transparency, price discovery, and competition than than anything else. Now, the reason I say you can't just do that rule is because there's also this rule. It's called the access fee cap. And what it says is exchanges can only charge 30 mils a share for an order
0: that takes liquidity. Okay, so... That's okay. Yeah. Brief interlude. And now we're back. Um, okay. So where yeah, were so, we?
1: I, I want to say, you know, you and you I described the, the rule that I think would be most important. And and I think we're very close to getting it. Um, I think that there has never been a time when we've been closer. Um, now, I've been pushing for what I described. I've been pushing for that since 2012. So we're 11 years in. Um, and Uh, The rules that the SEC proposed in December came very close. They didn't quite do it in the right way, but they're very close. And the industry has pushed back against some of the rule proposals from the SEC uh, because, for example, this retail auction facility that's a big unknown. We don't have something like that in equity markets. There is something like that in options markets, but you don't wanna like, <laughs> you don't wanna say, oh, let's do what the options market is doing. Cause that's like a whole clusterfuck in itself. So, <laughs> you know, it's the the equity markets there, they're, it's reasonable to say, we shouldn't try something we haven't tried before. And, and the beauty of the trade at rules, we actually tested that during something called the tick size pilot a few years ago, and we saw really good results. So we know in US equity markets that a trade at or minimum price improvement rule could work, that it would give us good results, that there wouldn't be unintended consequences, and that it's very similar to what the SEC has proposed in the order competition rule. So what I'm working on now is trying to convince the SEC to listen to the comment letter that we wrote, we the investors wrote, that was filed by thousands and thousands of people that said, this is good, but it could be better, and here's the right answer. And I found that that there are a lot of folks both at the SEC um and even in congress on both sides of the aisle um, that are very receptive to these arguments so i am gonna be um stupidly maybe naively cautiously optimistic being that it's been 11 years that i've been trying to get these you know them to consider these not just me lots of people this is you know it's these are ideas that that are a lot of other people have as well um and i i really do think that this is the first sec in which it's actually a realistic possibility Um, and so, you know, I'm going to keep pushing for that.
0: I mean, that, that is cautiously optimistic, actually. (laughs) Um, so, so let me ask you something that I have long suspected. I feel like if you were to go in tomorrow, right. In this hypothetical, wondrous scenario and just do what, you know, many retail investors want and, and just sort of snap your fingers and go, okay, we're going to clean this up. We're going to make everything transparent. And there's going to be um like an actual yeah i don't know i don't even know what you would do specifically but like just go in and be like look there's going to be no more of this naked short selling there's going to be no more of this sort of false price discovery based on like the worshiping at the altar of infinite liquidity um and there's gonna be like full transparency no more dark pools no more off exchange trading i feel like the entire stock market would fall to pieces but that's um, maybe that's me being a bit too cynical. What What do you think? Um, I mean, I would hope it wouldn't. I would hope
1: that much of the functioning of the markets is is working, um, and there are things happening in the margins that um, need to be fixed. And that might sound, you know, I, I think for people who for example, or just focused on GameStop, they might think there's nothing else that matters, and and that's fine. I understand that that perspective. But there, you know, this is a multi-trillion-dollar machine, and uh, a lot of companies come to it to raise money or to, you know, I, I think you see a lot of price discovery happening, um, and you see things that move on news. I think there are manip- you know, there are stocks that are manipulated. I, I don't think there's any. Out about that from anyone. Maybe people would argue over which ones are manipulated, but you know, market manipulation happens. This is no, there's no mystery to that. It happens on the long side and pump and dumps. It happens on the short side on you know with uh, with you know short selling and abuse of short selling and, and and manipulation. I've I've uh, measured it and and uh, created reports uh, and helped companies take action around this abuse. So, you know, I've seen it statistically and quantitatively. Uh, I've seen court cases that, you know, uncovered some pretty crazy shit. And um, there's no doubt that that's happening. I think the question is, is it, you know, is it pervasive? Is it the entire market? Would it fall apart? I, I don't think so. But I do think that there are parts of the market where people are, where firms are offsides to a great extent. I, I do think there are serious issues with what's called proxy plumbing, right? Which really has to do with voting and governance. Um, And I I think that's an area that a lot of people should be concerned about because I think your rights as a shareholder include oversight and governance of of the companies that you're invested in and the ability to vote. And that right is often stripped away or truncated and tossed away. Um, unless you're, you know, you're directly registered or unless your broker is doing things in the right way. Um, so, you know, I think there are all sorts of problems in many areas, but no, I, I don't think I would go so far as to say the whole thing would fall apart. Um, I, I do think, you know, there are, there are a handful of firms um, who might get blown up if that were to happen. And I, I, w- I won't argue that there would be systemic issues from it. You know, I, I'm not saying that. Um I think the problems are big enough that it they're systemic and it's a serious issue but i you know i I still think um the market functions pretty well in lots of situations um and that's probably not a very popular view, <laughs> but you know that's 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 how I see things
0: yeah i mean have you have you read the work of Nicholas Shackson at all? No, no okay no. so he's um a financial journalist basically. Um, and I think former economist and he wrote a lot about, uh, about tax havens and sort of offshoring money. And then he came out with this book, Mm. um, called the finance curse and basically his theory his thesis is that a financial sector in a country, once it passes a certain size, I think he estimates like 10 to 20% of GDP, um, Mm. that it becomes, it becomes a drain on the economy and on other parts of the economy in the same way that like a resource, uh, you get like a resource curse in, in a lot of places say mm-hmm, that are mm-hmm. very like oil states mm-hmm, or maybe yeah. not specifically Saudi Arabia because they've incredibly yeah. smart, but the like Dutch
1: curse. I'm, I'm familiar with. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, that's really interesting actually, because when I looked at this, I don't remember maybe in 2014 or 2015 and, and you know, I wrote I wrote an article about it actually I, I used to <laughs> I used to blog on Huffington post um, judge judge me as you might um, but it was a it, it got a lot of eyes so um, I I wrote a blog post once about how the financial sector in the US as a percentage of GDP had doubled um, you know over the last couple of decades and and how messed up that was so I I totally agree with that perspective. I think that's absolutely right. You know, I, I don't think that the financial sector needs to be such an overwhelming force. Um, and I think people in finance are really good at, you know, at, at, at expanding it, financializing and securitizing everything. And I think that that has proven in the past to be a serious problem, you know, crisis after crisis. So, um, oh, that's interesting. I, w- I would be very open to reading that book.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll send you a link. It's really interesting. Sure, that'd be great. Yeah. Um I think it estimates like in the last decade in the UK alone, not even in America, I think I think your financial sector is larger as a portion of GDP than ours, which is saying something. Yeah. Um, yeah. because we have the city of London. Um, yeah. But he basically argues, he'd like done some calculations and sort of estimated that 4.3 trillion pounds worth of uh, extra growth had been stolen from like the real economy. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Uh, That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I don't have, you know, but it, it sounds realistic to me,
1: you know, if it is truly a drain and, uh, you know, I, I think there's also, you know, it's a drain in all sorts of ways. Certainly you know, driving companies into the ground um, is one of the things that it tends to do, whether as we, you know, as you mentioned briefly before, through private equity or through some of the market manipulation that we see, you know, that's clearly something that uh, people have learned to profit from and that you would think would be a real problem for a vibrant economy. Mm.
0: So what do you think the chances of getting, like, uh, of the, the market having some sort of, like, in the future like a either a blockchain basis or something that allows like unforgeable transparency basically within the stock market like do you think that's a realistic possibility or is that a bit of a pipe dream
1: um i i think it depends how far in the future you're talking about i don't know that that will live to see it. Let's say. I mean, I, I think there's probably a a future in which the market is far better designed than it is today. Um, but there's also, you know, an a, a post a post apocalyptic future in which it's much worse uh, as well, right? So, I I think blockchain is a great technology. Um, And I'm a really big fan of certain uh, cryptocurrencies out there. Um, But from what I've seen over almost 20 years on Wall Street so far, is that change is really hard, that things are set up how they are. There are a lot of legacy systems. There are a lot of people whose careers are built on those legacy systems. Um, just from str- speaking strictly from a technology perspective, I mean, my my career started at a startup where we had a piece of technology that we thought could solve a lot of problems for large banks, and, and that we thought was far better than what the they were doing. And that didn't make a difference because the people who decided whether to adopt that technology or not were people who had built their careers on the piece of technology that we were trying to replace. <laughs> and so they were not interested in our technology. Um, and so you find, I think, a lot of that, and that to me, that's sort of just a metaphor from the tech world of oh, many things on Wall Street. Um, and so the, 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 the problem that you face is people have made a tremendous amount of money under the current system. And those people are very powerful um, and incentivized not to change anything. And so it's a very, it's a very tough ask to change everything. I think change will come over time. And if blockchain truly is better than as a system running in parallel aside, you know, besides the current legacy system, you know, maybe that's where um, it's success and, and, um, you know,
0: adoption might come from. But I'm not optimistic, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's, well, you wouldn't want to be. Sort of naive i guess <laughs> yeah and, and
1: and sometimes people interpret when i say something like this as like i don't want it to happen or i'm somehow incentivized and benefit from the current system and and or my company is and nothing could be further from the truth you know we're I, i'm a technologist i believe i i you know i'm, I'm a early adopter of blockchain and, uh, and bitcoin and and you know i think that the decentralized uh mindset is something that is truly revolutionary. I don't know that decentralized technologies have caught up yet with like the philosophy behind it, but you know, I am very much a. I think that's the right answer for a lot of things. I just I'm I'm maybe more of a cynic than anything else.
0: Yeah, I find myself increasingly in that um, in that camp as well. Unfortunately, um, so yeah. I got two more questions for you. Have you got Have you got time? Sure. sure. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So first one. Um, was from some uh from two people actually have commented um here asking about um gamestop and drs so uh, like they basically the like what i'm gonna wrap two questions in one here and, and sneak an extra one in so what do you think of the drs campaign generally um within like the gamestop community with them attempting to register the entire float and um what do you reckon the the chances are if you went out into the market and tried to buy a legitimate share or tried to buy a share of of say gamestop or any company like what are the chances that that is a legitimate share and not a synthetic one so um i think
1: direct registration is something that like this community has opened my eyes to and i think it's a great thing i think I, I'm personally a long-term investor. i'm I mean, I, my career was in trading and high frequency trading at that. so you know, the, as short term as you could possibly be. but <laughs> what comes naturally to me is long-term investment. and I like and I like investing in startups. I like investing in companies that I believe in. Um, and to me, direct registration is far more aligned with what I think markets should encourage, which is, long-term holdings and direct relationships between an issuer and a shareholder. Um, And so those aspects of direct registration are very exciting and appealing to me and something that we as a company are trying to figure out like how can we expand the adoption of that kind of of thing and how can we help facilitate that direct contact between shareholders and issuers. So. I have become a, a big fan, uh, and that's why we facilitated the conversation that we did between Gary Gensler and um, members of the community where we spent uh, 20 minutes in our most recent Q&A with him on direct registration um, because I think it's an important issue. Is it right for everyone? No. It is you know it, it is a, a choice that people have to make personally, um, and there are pros and cons to it. Um, if the community were to directly register the float, um, I think that would be a big deal, uh, I, or you know something close to it. That would be a dramatic statement that would you know validate a lot of what people have been saying. Um, I think that it it slowed down a lot, so it's maybe questionable whether that can happen. Um, but uh, you know that's
0: that would be something dramatic. Um, and then, sorry, what was the, the other part, part of the question? If you, if you went out into the market to buy a share, like what are oh, the chances sure. it's a legitimate share and not something synthetic?
1: Well, if if you buy through you know a discount broker, that order is going to go to Citadel uh, or Virtu or one of the other smaller firms, but mainly to those two. And they have this exemption, a regulatory exemption Called the market maker exemption that says they don't have to locate a share in order to sell you something. So, um, you know that that is another thing that we think should be changed and that we should get rid of the Madoff. This is a Bernie Madoff exemption. Um, so the the chances are very high they're selling you something without having that share. Um, the the question really becomes: Do they ultimately deliver that share? Do they fail to deliver it, um, or is there? Um, you know, something happening within the netting and clearing system uh, that serves to sort of mask the problems with settlement and delivery. And I think that's a far more reasonable question to ask. Um, And it's one that, you know, I've seen people that know more about this than I ask. And so um, I think that that's part of the problem in our market today and one that a settlement discipline regime would address. And that's why, you know, that's one of the issues that in, in our grassroots advocacy work that we that we believe in, that, that ultimately the US should try to move towards a settlement discipline regime. But I, I do think that that's a really big foundational change and that's something that's gonna take a long time.
0: Well, actually on that, um, uh, everyone watching on Thursday, I will be talking to uh, Dr. Suzanne Trimbath again. So uh, tune in for that. Um, So then last question um, is you mentioned cryptocurrencies you find interesting. So Ben Worm, uh, Ben Vermin will definitely 100% um, want me to ask this question. Like, is one of them Bitcoin? Bitcoin? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But which Bitcoin? (laughs) Oh, like Bitcoin versus Bitcoin cash? (laughs) Uh, Well, no, then there's, there's uh, BSV, Bitcoin, Satoshi's vision, um, which intrigues me as well, because that's, made by your guy uh dr craig wright who claims to be satoshi nakamoto who I had in the show uh, a year or two back which was very interesting i imagine <laughs> yeah conversations <laughs> with him would be
1: interesting um i think he could easily prove that and still hasn't so i yeah. well it's, sure. going to,
0: it's going to court now there's like it's the the alter, the like the, there's a there's a new court case which is literally like it's like is he bullshitting or not so i'm very interested to see what the result of that yeah is. but all he
1: has to do is like sign a transaction right like it could be so easily answered <laughs> yeah but he claims he lost the keys well he lost the keys okay but yeah. that's a that's a convenient answer if you created it you <laughs> lost the keys i mean that doesn't speak well towards the 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 whole thing in general, right? If you can't keep track of your keys, why do you think anyone else should be able to? But fine, that aside, um, no, I mean I'm I am not a Bitcoin maximalist, um, but uh, Bitcoin I have been in, interested in since 2010, which was when I bought my first Bitcoin. And you might think I'm filthy rich because of that, but I unfortunately sold those Bitcoin way too early. Um, and that was actually my, my best and worst trade of all time was the same trade. Uh, I bought, bought $200 worth of Bitcoin at $2 a Bitcoin. And then in that run-up when it went to 800 and a thousand, I mean, of course I sold because I was like, what the, this is crazy. And well, there you go. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So my best and worst trade of all time. But uh, no, I I still hold Bitcoin. Um, I have some Ethereum. I'm a really big fan of Avalanche. I think Avalanche is a really unique technology. It's uh, got kind of everything you want in a cryptocurrency. Um, It's sufficiently decentralized, unlike most of the others. Uh, It's got sub-second finality. It's proof of stake rather than proof of work. Um, So it's cleaner you know and and more i think more responsible um and so i have i've been running a node on avalanche since almost the chain launched and i'm a i'm just a huge fan
0: of the tech ah wow well i'm gonna have to get you back at some point to have this proof of work proof of stake discussion um but um for now uh, (laughs) i will have to leave it um, Dave, sure, it's then. been an absolute pleasure getting to chat to you. Um, is there Likewise. anything you want to like point people towards in terms of the, the terminal or any like particular bits of content or anything?
1: Yeah. I mean, if, if people are interested in what we're doing, they can go to urban.finance and sign up for our beta. And it's all free right now, so you know, I'd encourage you to take a look. And we've got great communities on there, including you know, G- a, a, a large GME community. Um, and uh, we've, you know, I'd also encourage people to go to we the um, And that's our grassroots advocacy campaign. And there's a lot to do over the next year to try and make sure that the SEC gets these changes right, to support them in these changes, because they're, they're fighting a lot of very powerful firms. Uh, to work on calling Congress and making sure Congress understands these issues and that their constituents care about it. And these are all things that we're trying to help shepherd along and and to be a part of. And, you know, we love that people support what we're doing. And we've had hundreds of thousands of people sign up to support our efforts. And, um, you know, I I think that's probably the most exciting part of all this. So, you know, I I hope that there are others out there that want to join what we're doing. And, And if anyone wants to get involved, um you know please reach out because you know the we the investors what we that's just what we do in our spare time um and you know we're always open to people helping out with that
0: awesome right well um i will put links for all that stuff in the description below um but yeah man thanks very much it's been a pleasure sure thing thanks for having me hey everyone thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast i love that you tuned in this long do me a favor hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.